Uh, hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another podcast from the ATS Assembly on Clinical Problems. I'm Matt Schimmel at Emory University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Robert Lentz, who is the lead author of today's article for discussion, Routine Monitoring with Pleural Manometry During Therapeutic Large-Volume Thoracentesis to Prevent Pleural Pressure-Related Complications, a multi-center, single-blind, randomized control trial, which was recently published in the February edition of The Lancet. Dr. Robert Lentz is an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at Vanderbilt University in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine. He completed both his pulmonary critical care and later his interventional pulmonary fellowship at the same institution. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Lentz. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So I know that pleural manometry has been a pretty heavily debated topic in the IP literature for a while now. I was hoping before we jump into uh, your paper, if we could start by hearing about some of that background and just the overall impetus for, for your study. Yeah, sure. So pleural manometry is just simply the measurement of pressure inside the pleural space. And there's a couple ways you can do this. Uh, the most direct way is to introduce a catheter into the pleural space, usually when there's an infusion there, or pneumothorax, I suppose. Uh, and, and measuring pressures using one of a, a variety of potential devices. And uh, this is of interest kind of from a physiologic and some pathophysiologic kind of theory-based things. And then, of course, there's potential clinical implications, which we care about as we take care of our patients. Uh, on the physiologic side of things, we like an organ that, that works because of pressure changes. We breathe under negative pressure. So if we weren't able to change the, the pressure in the space, we wouldn't be able to introduce air into our lungs. And so from a normal breath, diaphragm contracts, moves down, the pleural pressure becomes more negative, we draw air in. Normal pleural pressure is a little bit subatmospheric because you have uh, the elastic recoil of the lung pulling away from the, the rigid chest wall. The kind of modern interest in, uh, in pleural pressure and, and pathophysiology related to it uh, kind of stems from uh, Dr. Richard Light's seminal 1980 paper uh, in which he, he looked at the uh, pressure-based pathophysiology or, or physiology in large effusions. Um, Dr. Light is a, a colleague of mine here at Vanderbilt, which I'm very fortunate about. And uh, actually, he attended when I was a trainee here. Uh, he attends our inpatient service more than uh, any other attending. He's, he's on our inpatient pulmonary side quite a bit, uh, which is always fun for, uh, for our trainees here. He always asks us if we used his criteria when working up pleural problems, which is uh, pretty fun. In any case, so in, uh, in 1980, Dr. Light published a, a paper where he looked at what happens to the pressure, you know, over time as he drained these effusions out. And he found that some lungs had what he called normal elastins, elastins being the, the change in pressure over the change in volume. And in, in these quote-unquote normal elastins-type situations, the polar pressure in a large effusion is usually a little bit positive. And then as you drain fluid, it kind of drifts slowly down in a kind of downward gentle slope. Uh, back towards, uh, you know, the sub-atmospheric normal, kind of negative five, that kind of uh, mil uh, centimeters of water kind of range. But some patients have uh, lungs that are not re-expandable, or they're only re-expandable to a point. Um, and uh, in those patients, as you draw more fluid off, uh, the pressure starts to spike uh, very rapidly negative. And this we care about for a few reasons. Um, most pertinent to the, the paper here today is that when we're doing thoracentesis or pleurofluid aspiration, we care about doing it safely and we care about doing it, you know, in the most comfortable way for our patients. 
And there are a number of complications of uh, pleural fluid aspiration that we think are related to pressure, namely uh, pneumothorax ex vacuo, where we have kind of experimental uh, animal-level evidence suggesting that when you apply a lot of negative pressure, a lot of suction to the pleural space, uh, and rapidly re-expand uh, a lung, you can have edema that can be fatal form in, in that organ. Or pneumothorax is thought to be potentially a pressure-related complication where you, again, apply too much uh, negative pressure to a space and you, you allow the introduction of air. Um, and then there's been some uh, data suggesting that chest discomfort can, can develop. Patients can sense uh, the extra stretch on a, on a lung that doesn't want to expand or a, a pleural membrane that doesn't want to expand can make the procedure less comfortable. Uh, and so it's in kind of that setting that we were interested in studying uh, in a kind of randomized prospective way uh, whether we could alter these potential complications during large volume thoracentesis uh, by monitoring the pressure in the pleural space. Yeah, that's perfect. And that was kind of the impetus for the, the, the trial and the protocol for you. Why did you choose uh, chest pain as your primary outcome? So um, it's a good question, and uh, there's a couple different ways to answer it. When you when you dig through the literature surrounding thoracentesis and pleuromanometry, um, there's been a fair amount written, and there's some good trials out there. Um, the one thing that kind of stood out to us as we were deciding to to develop this protocol um, was that there weren't any randomized trials in this space. Um, there were uh, some decent, you know, prospective large uh, series, kind of looking at all these different complications uh, we just talked about and in thoracentesis with manometry, uh, but none, none randomized. And so that was the, the first thing that kind of stood out and made us realize that there was something that could be done here. Um, the reason to not do re-expansion edema or pneumothorax is, one, they're, they're much less common, particularly re-expansion edema is, is quite uncommon. And so they, they were not uh, attractive in that regard because we'd have to have a very large trial in order to uh, detect any signal there, if there was signal to detect. Uh, and the other reason we didn't go for those two is because uh, even if we could design a you know, massive trial and find signal there, the, the data that was out there, uh, which for both of these complications was you know, prospective uh, observational type data, was, was you know, pretty compelling in finding that manometry didn't prevent either complication. Uh, for re-expansion edema, Dr. David Feller-Kotman out at Hopkins, who's, who's done a lot of work in this area, um, has a, a nice paper, I think from 2007, where he aspirated, I think, 185 uh, effusions greater than a liter, so large effusions, um, using manometry, and uh, there were five incidences of re-expansion edema, only one of which was symptomatic, uh, and there wasn't any association with, with the pressure uh, that he was finding on these patients. Uh, you couldn't predict uh, the development of this by a change in pressure or a change in the elastance or even symptoms developing. So it seems that, at least in, in humans, re-expansion edema, we haven't been able to show that it, it is associated with pressure. Again, we have, you know, rabbit and monkey evidence from the 70s where, uh, you know, when we applied massive suction to the pleural space in lungs that had been down for a while, that it didn't matter. So that's that's where that came from. So you know, re-expansion was not very common, and we didn't have great data in humans that it really is a pressure-related uh, thing. And then uh, for pneumothorax vacuo, we ha there's a couple of, again, kind of you know, decently conducted prospective observational-type trials or, or series where uh, the use of manometry didn't seem to prevent um, pneumothorax. And so um, one of these was uh, by Heidecker and colleagues published in 2006, 
and they found about a 5% rate of uh, pneumothorax during large-volume thoracentesis, all of which were done with manometry. And none of those patients had what we consider excessively negative pleural pressure, which is uh, something of a historical definition. It's negative 20 centimeters of water. Uh, again, this was based way back when on, on animal trials showing that when you uh, did not exceed that level of suction or, or that level of negative pressure, uh, you were unlikely to have complications. And so, you know, in this paper, there were 5% pneumothoraces, and that threshold was not crossed. And so it, doesn't, it didn't seem that, that manometry prevents pneumothorax. And so uh, chest discomfort, there have been a couple series on chest discomfort uh, as it related to manometry in, in large volume thoracentesis uh, with somewhat conflicting results. And so, again, Dr. David feller Kotman has published uh, a series, a uh, fairly large series, where he found that the pressure was more negative uh, in pleural space, although not typically excessively negative in patients who developed just discomfort that is typical of, of excessively negative pleural pressure, which is kind of a pressure-like sensation in the anterior chest or the neck or the jaw. And the other series in the space is Jasmine Tanu uh, with Fabi Maldonado, who's senior author on the current paper, in a retrospective way found that manometry uh, versus not using manometry did not change the degree of chest discomfort uh, between groups in a retrospective study. So this was in, in the chest discomfort area, there was kind of the least robust data and some conflicting data. And chest discomfort is a much more common occurrence uh, during large volume thoracentesis than these other two complications. And so kind of for all those reasons, the obvious endpoint here uh, was chest discomfort. And that's that came from as our primary outcome. And what would you say are the primary findings that our, our listeners should take away from the study? So um, the primary outcome in the study was uh, the patient report of their overall procedural chest discomfort, right? So five minutes after we finished draining their effusion, which, by the way, all of these patients, we tried to drain them dry. The goal of all these procedures is to completely evacuate their, their pleural uh, fusion, um, and we stopped drainage for kind of all the reasons that we stop in in clinical practice. So they developed chest discomfort that was consistent with excessively negative pleural pressure that didn't go away, you know, after a moment or two of stopping, uh, or they developed intractable cough, or some other complication became apparent. We stopped draining in all patients in, in when those things occurred. And then the manometry arm, if they developed excessively negative pleural pressure at end expiration, so Ne more negative than negative 20 centimeters of water, or their pleural pressure was rapidly falling towards that negative 20 threshold. Those were the reasons, in addition to the symptoms that we stopped, we stopped in, in manometry. So uh, we did these thoracentesis. We aspirated as much as we could uh, until one of those things developed. And then five minutes later, we asked them to kind of rate, okay, so overall, from the start of the procedure until now, five minutes after the procedure, uh, what is your overall degree of chest discomfort uh, that, that was associated with doing this? And we had the market on a visual analog scale, which is very easy. You know, to the left of the scale is you know no discomfort at all. To the right of the scale is the worst possible chest discomfort you could imagine. And then they marked wherever along that line they felt. So that was our primary outcome. Uh, and we found that there was no difference between the two uh, groups, manometry plus symptoms versus symptoms alone uh, to guide uh, thoracentesis. There was no difference. Uh, between those arms on that primary outcome. We looked uh, at a number of different secondary outcomes related to both discomfort and breathlessness, um, including change in, in pre-procedure to post-procedure discomfort, discomfort through 15 minutes after the procedure, uh, the trend in discomfort 
as we drain fluid. So every 200 cc's uh, in the first liter and then every 100 uh, cc's thereafter, uh, we would pause in, in both groups and have them mark how much chest discomfort they had at that very moment. And so we looked at the trend over time uh, to see if that was different between the groups, uh, breathlessness, all of these things, there was no difference uh, between these two arms, and nor was there any difference in the time it took to do the procedure, the volume that we ultimately drained from these patients, or their uh, frequency of complete lung re-expansion. And so the kind of bottom line you know, finding of the study is that there didn't seem to be any patient-centered or otherwise benefit to using manometry on a routine basis to drain these, you know, large pleural fusions. Excellent. And um, there was a significant increase in the occurrence of uh, pneumothorax ex vacuo in the symptom-guided drainage group. Is there any significance or relevance to that? Uh, yeah. So um, maybe, I think, is the best I can answer for that. So uh, we did find a, a difference in the rate of pneumothorax between the two groups. So we had six of 62 in our control arm, which was the symptom-guided arm, had uh, a pneumothorax on a post-drainage film. Uh, none of the manometry patients did. So one caveat here is that, you know, most of the patients in this trial were outpatients. And so we would drain, you know, in our clinic procedure room, we would do the thoracentesis, we'd order the x-ray, we'd tell them to go get their x-ray on the way out, and, you know, 13% of our patients just kind of went straight for the door and didn't get the post-film. And so it was pretty evenly balanced who didn't get the post-film, seven in control and, and nine in manometry. Um, I, I suspect that uh, had everyone gotten their film, there might have still been a difference, although if, you know, uh, six of nine that didn't get their post-film in manometry actually had new authorities, then there'd be no difference here. So I, I can't say for sure that there is a difference with that missing data that we had here. Um, I wouldn't surprise me if there is some difference here. The bigger question is, is the difference important? Or, or does the fact that uh, some pneumothorides ex vacuo happen if you don't use manometry, does that matter? All of the pneumothorides in our trial were pneumothorides ex vacuo. So we presumably, in these patients, uh, excessively negative pressure developed such that uh, something had to come in and fill that void, uh, be it air that either leaked out from malt air in the pleural membrane or came back in through the, the catheter tract. There are several different mechanisms this can happen. But none of these were expanding pneumothorides, and so, uh, and, and that's kind of by definition what pneumothorides ex vacuo are. They're, they are pneumothorides that are just taking up space uh, that don't otherwise have clinical consequence, and none of these patients were symptomatic. And so in our view of the pneumothorax ex vacuo, it's just a demonstration of abnormal pleural physiology, just the same as you could detect using the manometer. And so it didn't change anything for these patients whether we determined that they had abnormal pleural physiology via manometry or via chest x-ray after the procedure. Uh, we learned in both these arms that these patients had abnormal pleural mechanics and pleural elastins, and we could use that information later, but it didn't matter how we got to it, which is why we, we determined that, or, and we state in, in the paper that there weren't any serious complications. Some people consider this a complication. Uh, to us, it's just a demonstration of abnormal physiology. Um, there were... Uh, couple of things that reviewers brought up, and so the one, the one thing that I think is fair is that if we have a patient that is going to get on a plane tomorrow, it could be reasonable to use a manometer for that patient to try to avoid excessively negative pressure, again, assuming that this is not an actual real finding and, and not something that we just didn't see because we didn't have all the, the post films. So if someone's about to fly in you know, the days after the procedure, manometry 
to find out their, their plural lacens is abnormal rather than pneumothorax on test film might be uh, more advantageous. And so there is that, and I'll make that point. Are there any other cases in which you still feel like there's utility in measuring plural pressures, or do you think this is more of the end of the plural manometry debate? Um, I don't. I don't think it's the end. Uh, there are, I think, situations when plural manometry is helpful and useful and, and should be considered. Um, I, I think, as far as we were interested in determining whether there's an across-the-board, you know, routine indication for manometry uh, in large volume thoracentesis, and I think our data is fairly robust in its conclusion that for routine procedure, routine use, that this doesn't add anything to the patient or add anything to us or our, our knowledge. Um, there are uh, situations where I think it's reasonable to, to use manometry. So one is if you want to diagnose someone with a trap alone, right? So one of these uh, original lastence curves, characteristic curves that, that Dr. Light developed or, or published in the 80s uh, is that of trap lung. So this is uh, someone who had some remote inflammatory pleural problem. So a paranemonic effusion that wasn't drained, an empyema that wasn't drained adequately, that caused the viscera pleura to be covered or replaced with fibrous peel, right? And so that, that's a lung that cannot re-expand at all because it's fixed by this fibrous peel. Uh, and so you're only going to hurt that patient by trying to aspirate pleural fluid. If you use a manometer, you usually see a negative opening of pleural pressure, which is not typical of other uh, large volume effusions. So uh, and then you'll see if you start aspirating fluid in the setting that their pleural pressure will rapidly fall. Um, and that's diagnostic with trapped lung. And so you can conclude two things from that. One is that you shouldn't do anything else to this patient, and you should tell that patient if anyone ever comes at you with a long pointy thing and wants to put it in your back, you should tell them, no, this is not a good idea, this lung is trapped. And then the other thing is that patient might need a decortication, uh, potentially, if, in, in the right scenario. And so I, if you want to diagnose trapped lung, and I think there's, uh, utility to that, then pleural manometry is the way you do that. Um, there are situations where I, I think if if there's a high degree of suspicion for non-expandable lung or a question as to the mechanism by which a pleural effusion has been created, that there might be utility in using manometry. And so the situation I think about here is uh, the patient with a known or suspected central airway obstruction uh, ipsilateral to uh, a sizable effusion. So this typically occurs when the patient has cancer and you think they have or you know they have a malignant obstruction in their airway, and you also wonder if they've got a malignant effusion, or is it just the central airway problem causing post-obstructive collapse and that's just an ex vacuo effusion. Uh, in the latter circumstance, if you try to start draining that effusion, they, they act similar to the trap lung scenario where you'll, you'll pretty rapidly dive their, their pleural pressure. If they've got a malignant infusion and a central airway obstruction and they've overproduced pleural fluid, you'll see the usual, you know, positive initial pleural pressure, and then you'll be able to drain potentially to a point, uh, and then there's the, the central airway obstruction will limit the degree to which they can expand past that. So in those patients, I think it's it can be helpful to use manometry to try to delineate how much of this infusion is uh, overproduction via the usual malignant pleural effusion mechanisms, how much of this is ex vacuo uh, because of, of central airway thing. Um, several of our reviewers in, in the editorial that uh, accompanied this paper, it's come up a number of times, this issue of the very large pleural effusion, right? So uh, a, a fusion of volume greater than 1.5 liters. 
This is kind of a cutoff that you'll see a lot in the thoracentesis literature. It's in the British Thoracic Society guidelines uh, for thoracentesis, uh, where they suggest that you shouldn't drain more than 1,500 uh, milliliters at a, in one session uh, because the risk of complications increases past that, right? And so there's been a number of authors, light among them, in this 1980 paper and, and a couple back uh, in that era, uh, where they demonstrated that you could safely uh, exceed that 1.5 liter threshold while monitoring manometry and, and knowing you, were, you weren't getting into an excessively negative pressure uh, type situation. We did not do a trial of very large pleural effusion. So we had about 20 patients or so where we went over 1.5 liters, which is about 16% uh, of our total cohort. And so I think it's fair to say that our results here might not apply, uh, or we don't have a lot of data on the tail here uh, to say definitively that over 1.5 liters uh, manometry couldn't help, right? The one thing that I will say is if you look uh, look at the figures in our paper and you look at the trend in pain score over time, um, there's actually more discomfort or trend towards more discomfort in the manometer group when you exceed uh, 1.5 liters. Now, we didn't have the numbers to find significance uh, that far out, and so this might just be noise. Um, but if it's not, there's chance of what, of what we thought was like an emboldening effect. So. If you're using a manometer and you can see that your pleural pressure is not getting excessively negative, you might be more apt to try to overdrain that effusion into uh, patient discomfort. Um, and, and so, again, we, we didn't conduct a trial of very large effusion. That might be something someone wants to do someday, um, but that uh, has been uh, an issue that's come up uh, in the reviews uh, on this paper. And then I think the, the most interesting potential uh, use of manometry that, that has not been adequately evaluated just yet, although there uh, is at least one trial in development or, or might be actively recruiting, uh, looking at whether pleural pressure or, or rather pleural lastance uh, should play a role in deciding how to manage symptomatic recurrent malignant pleural effusion. Um, and so uh, specifically whether you should try to pleurodese somebody, uh, talc slurry, however you want to do it or um, put in an indwelling pleural catheter. We've seen a number of recent uh, indwelling pleural catheter trials um, with relatively uh, modest pleurode you know, autopleurodesis rates, only in the kind of you know 50-ish percent range or a little less than that even. Um, and so one thought might be that it's pleural lastness is playing a role here. If you can identify a patient who will be uh, fully expandable with normal lastness, they might be more apt to successfully pleurodese as opposed to patients that have abnormal elastins. And so I, I think this is going to be something that will be interesting moving forward, whether manometry and pleural elastins should play a role in, in how we choose our interventions in, this, in that kind of patient population. Great. And one last question for you, and then I'll let you get going. You use digital manometers for measurement during your trial. Uh, for any proceduralists interested in performing pleural manometry out there and who don't have ready access to those type of devices, uh, what's your opinion on measuring pleural pressure using just standard thoracentesis tubing? Uh, that's a good question. So um, it can be done. Um, it can be a little bit challenging to set up. And, and so if it's something that you want to do, I'd, I'd say that you should uh, learn how to do it uh, correctly and, and do it fairly regularly so that you know what you're, how you're doing it. So there's a number of ways that you can measure pleural pressure. Um, we use, as you said, these digital electronic uh, digital manometers. 
you just screw into the uh, ends of your thoracitis catheter and then you put your drainage line out the other end of it and it, it just sits in line and measures pressure uh, when you're not actively applying suction via your syringe or whatever to the system. The uh, original lights paper and some of the earlier uh, trials here, actually many of them, um, were done using U-shaped water manometers uh, or, or U-tube manometers. And so, um, and you can you can create one of these with the tubing that's in most thoracentesis kits. And so you basically put a three-way stopcock on the end of the uh, the catheter, and then to one arm of that stopcock, uh, you have uh, a length of tubing that's filled with saline. The initial part loops down, rests below uh, the patient, and then the other you you hold the other loop up uh, above the patient. And you need to have that U in it because pleural pressure can range from pressure positive to negative. And so there's a, a good picture of this in a, a paper written by Lee uh, in Chest uh, 2014 out of Hopkins where they actually compared the uh, validity and, and reliability of these different uh, transducer and, and you, water manometer type methods. And so you can, there's a picture of how they set this up. So they tape uh, a paper uh, tape measure to the back of the patient uh, with about 10 centimeters or so in, in tick marks above where the catheter goes into the patient and the rest below, and they have this loop of, of tubing and, and are measuring uh, pressure uh, during that. This paper found that the uh, water manometer uh, did not really perform very well uh, when compared to the gold standard, which is an electronic transducer, so like the same thing you use in the ICU to transduce central venous pressure, for example. Um, Whereas the digital manometer, like the one that we used, did correspond quite well to what the uh, the, trans the electronic transducer came up with. One of the reasons for this is probably because as patients breathe, the pressure is constantly changing, right? So they breathe in, the pressure goes more negative. They exhale, it goes more positive. They cough, it goes real positive. And when you have a viscous liquid, saline or pleurofluid, in a narrow column, uh, there's resistances and viscosity plays a role. And so I think it's it's probably difficult to really accurately measure pressure in that setting given the meniscus will constantly be moving and will be uh, a little bit delayed. There's a, a paper written by Dalkin and colleagues in CHEST uh, 2004 where they actually advocate for over dampening uh, a water manometer. So they, they put a 22-gauge needle basically uh, in the bottom of the, the loop of tubing uh, that that dampens the whole system, and, and then you, you don't get the oscillations on the, the ascending limb of the, of the tubing, and it measures the mean. And it will go up and down a few millimeters, but not these wide swings like you'll see without it. And that mean, in their study, actually correlated quite well with the uh, electronic transducer. So I think the bottom line is, based on the data that's out there, you can uh, get at least a rough idea of pleural pressure making a U-shaped water manometer using the stuff in the kit, but it might not be terribly accurate, and you have to add some extra stuff into it uh, that may not be in the kit if you want to make it uh, more reliable. And so if, if this is something that you really are interested in doing, these disposable single-use guys, digital manometers were, were fairly simple and straightforward to use. Great. Well, Dr. Lenz, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your recent paper. Um, we really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So that was Dr. Robert Lentz, again, discussing the results of his recent trial looking at the clinical utility of routine pleural manometry during large-volume therapeutic thoracentesis. The results of the study were quite interesting. 
there was no significant benefit for routine monitoring of pleural manometry in terms of pleural pressure-related complications, including patient discomfort or re-expansion pulmonary edema. While the pro-con debate for pleural manometry will continue, uh, the data from this trial does not support the routine use of this approach. This is Matt Schimmel, signing off.